0: When George Shultz was Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, he kept a large globe in his office. And so when newly appointed ambassadors would would interview with him and when when they would return and debrief with him, he would always test them. And this was the question he would ask them. And he go over to my globe and can you identify the country, your country? And so they would go over that globe and they would spin it and they would uh, unerrably point to their country every time that they they served in. And so one time, former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield, who was appointed to the Ambassador of Japan, he was put to the test. This time, however, when Ambassador Mansfield spun the globe, he put his finger on the United States. He said, That's my country. After that encounter, Schultz would tell all the ambassadors going out, he says, Never forget when you're over there and whatever country you're in, where you belong. What country is actually yours? Never forget what you represent and who you represent. Take care of our interests and never forget it. And you're representing the best country in the world. Now, Philippians 3 says, Paul says it this way, a little bit different than George would say it, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Paul says it also in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What Paul is getting at is the same thing that Jesus is getting at, is that you are in the world, but you are not of the world. You are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of the kingdom of God, but you are not, and you may reside. In fact, the better imagery that we are is that we're resident aliens, in the country that we serve and in this world that we are. But we actually belong, our citizenship belongs somewhere else. We are citizens of the kingdom. And while we reside in these earthly and temporary kingdoms and nations and empires, our king in our kingdom does not belong to this world. And remember how John defines this kind of concept of world that he often uses, is that, that the world is, is that the, the moral rebellion in, in, against God. The this, this state of sin, that's what he means by the world. The, the, the kingdom includes the world. It doesn't exclude it. God's kingdom includes the world. It doesn't include it, but it's much, much more. It's much, much more. And while we may be citizens of the U.S., I think our U.K. citizens are not here this morning, right? We are truly only citizens of of the kingdom of God we are ambassadors living in this world but we're not of this world maybe we never forget that truth and that reality that our loyalties and interests lie in the best kingdom the everlasting kingdom the kingdom of God In this passage of John this morning, Jesus is showing the stark difference between uh, the kingdoms of the world, the empires of the world, and his kingdom. It's, It's the kingdom versus the world, or better put it, if we were to title this movie, it's Jesus versus the world. Let's turn to John 18, 28 and see the difference here that Jesus is pointing out. They led, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, that's the, the Jewish and the Pharisees, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So let's just remember the context of which is happening here is that, right, initially they arrested Jesus at night, right, and they brought him to the house of Hannas. Who was figuratively the head, that the chief priest? He wasn't the chief priest because Rome removed him, and uh, Caiaphas was the chief. But but everyone viewed Hannas as the chief priest and the one that had the kind of political power or the, the theological power with his people. So they brought him to him. Uh, Hannas is kind of ugh, like done with Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus points out the illegal process in which Hannas is using to interview. Uh, interview Jesus, and then Hannah's like, send him to Caiaphas. In John's account, we actually don't get the account of where he's uh, meeting with Caiaphas at all. We jump right to Caiaphas, sends him to Pilate. Initially, the, the questions that uh, Hanus and Caiaphas have, they have theological issues with Jesus, who he's claiming to be. Right, He is, in their opinion, blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. But when they bring it to Rome and they bring it to Pilate, the actual issue is they don't bring a theological issue because Rome wouldn't care about that. They bring a political charge. This man is claiming to be king, more powerful than the emperor. And that, of course, would get Rome's uh, higher up. It is early morning now, which is actually not surprising. Remember, it's the middle of the night, so now it's probably like early in the morning, five or six our time. And you think, man, that's really early to bring him to Pilate, isn't it? Like, I, I, Pilate must be upset. But actually, that is actually pretty ordinary. Roman workday was really early in the morning, and they tried to finish by ten or eleven. And they're kind of like the the army or the military forces, right? Like get done all the things early and then take the day off. So this would have been kind of a normal procedure is come early. They would have been up and active already. I want you to notice the, the religious detail in this passage we just read, right? The Jewish leaders did not enter Pilate's headquarters, but Jesus does. Jesus has to. They drag him in. And because the entering of a Gentile or Roman place with a roof over it, they could be in the courtyard, would have been a, a sense of, they would have been unclean in that aspect, particularly a Roman or Gentile, uh, unclean and dirty, and would have exiled them, not just in, oh, I, there's a ritual, I can wash myself clean, I be clean that day. It would have been so uh, cleansing from the dirt in which they presided, and there's, there's lots of reasons why we won't go into uh, why that's actually, they thought that was particularly that the Romans were particularly dirty for them, it made them un, ceremonially unclean. But it would extend it that that uncleanliness for a week, and it would exclude them from the whole Passover ceremonies. You remember Passover is like an eight-day kind of festivities and and feast, so a big meal the first day, but then there would be meals each and every day. So they did not want to be excluded from that. I want you to sense the deep irony in this passage. The Jews are taking every precaution to avoid being unclean, to being very religious, while at the same time knowingly manipulating or rigging the charges and the justice system against Jesus to get their desired outcome. I mean, you have to be really sit real confidently in that moment, knowing what you're doing and what, you're, like, what, like, what you believe. Charles Spurgeon says this, nothing makes a man so virtuous as a belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. See, the the Jewish people, their incongruous acts betray their faith. And what is their faith? It's a faith that many of you and I live each and every day. That somehow our righteousness, our behavior, our obedience makes us righteous or makes us clean. And if you follow Charles Spurgeon's logic, I think if you follow the logic of what the Gospels are trying to say, if that is what your belief is, then the outcome of your behavior is like, I'm going to keep trying to do those things. I'm keep trying to do those things. But the reality, eventually your behavior is going to become hypocritical and erroneous and false and deeply, obviously sinful because it wasn't based on a truth. It was based on a lie. You see, the Pharisees and religious leaders in this moment, they practice religion without a heart faith. I don't know if you've ever done that. Jesus, he talks about this and he quotes uh, this kind of religion without heart faith in the gospels. He quotes Hosea 6, 6, which it says, God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see what Jesus is getting at here? He's actually not saying I don't like sacrifice is a bad thing. He's not saying that. But oftentimes, even like in the season of Lent, we think, ah, it's a season in which we offer sacrifice, a religious expression. And what Jesus can say, yeah, that's okay, but what I really want is a changed heart. What I really want is you to desire mercy or desire love. And I want you to see the connection is that the, the, the desire mercy and the desire love is equated to the knowledge of God here the knowledge that God actually loves you, that is love, and then that actually will transform you, I, I will have that love as well because I'm so transformed by that love. The actions of the Pharisees and the rest of the Jews reveal their false God and not their true God. Their false God is their obedience, their action. Before we get into the exchange with Pilate, I just want to give a brief word about our friend Pilate. Uh, so, we don't know much about Pilate in the Bible. We know a little bit, but we don't know much. But from outside, Jewish uh, uh, historians tell us, particularly Josephus, that Pilate served as the governor or the prefect of Judea from 26 to 37 A.D. Remember, this time period we're in now is in 30, 33 AD. So he's been serving there well. And so Judea wasn't a particularly good appointment for a Roman governor. You, think about how, I want you to think about how Rome ruled. Rome would conquer nations and they would declare, we're the, there's the emperor, we're the rule, you owe taxes to us. But in many ways they would appoint a governor or a ruler in those regions and they would allow People to kind of, okay, you can kind of run the things that you want and do the things you want, as long as they don't conflict with what we want. And so you can kind of keep your ordinary life, but just remember, we're in control and we have power and we will assert that when we want to. Uh, and as long as you're paying taxes to us and giving proper honor, everything goes. So they, they appointed uh, prefects and rulers and, and guards to do that. And so, but Judea wasn't particularly a prestigious place to be assigned, and particularly because uh, the Jewish people had a reputation of causing a lot of upheaval and uproar and not being really satisfied with the Roman occupation. So there was a lot of uh, fighting or a lot of uh, outburst or a lot of protest about that. And Pilate's reputation wasn't particularly a morally strong person. He was a bit of a politician. He'd be known as kind of a flip-flopper. Uh, and so, but he, he tried to overcome those weaknesses of being a flip flopper and a, a people pleaser with brutality and stubbornness. So, at the beginning of his reign, he actually brought in into Jerusalem uh, the images of the emperor. Into and just kind of publicly displayed that, as rightfully so, as Rome would want people to worship the emperor or think the emperor is a godlike figure, put it on their coins. And so the Jews would loudly protest it, this kind of Im- their, their holy city, how dare you bring this pagan image into us? And so the Jews protested. And so he threatened to bring in more troops, and eventually he said, look, I'm going to bring more troops, and I'm going to cut off the heads of Anyone who protests, and so the Jewish response to Pilate at that moment—this is a kind of historical record—is that they said, "Great!" They lie down in the streets and stuck out their necks says, "Go ahead, cut off our necks. We dare you." And of course, Pilate backed down, a little bit frustrated by this. And so there's multiple instances in our life of, of, of Pilate's interaction with the Jewish people uh, and their pushback on him, and. Uh, oftentimes him not winning that struggle. So uh, it was a contentious relationship, and at times Pilate would uh, be very brutal and forceful with him, uh, but he was often in a, a weak and uneasy spot with the emperor because the emperor says, why, why are these people keep protesting? Why don't you have them under control, Pilate? And so Pilate was like in this weak political position. Now we understand a little bit more of Pilate's interaction with Jesus. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? You can see this kind of tense relationship, right? It's like, Pilate, we wouldn't bring bad people to you. Deal with him. Like, like we're forcing your hand. You ought to do what we ask you to do, right? Remember, we can make things unhappy for you, uneasy for you, uh, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate's response is like, I want nothing to do with this. This is not breaking any Roman law. You're not bringing any charge against, like, I don't care. Like, leave me out of this. You deal with them. That's what you want. Take care of it. I don't need to be involved. Leave me out of this. Period. Now, Pilate would have known the charges against him without asking. Why Pilate would have known that is because they would have had to ask his permission to send Roman soldiers to actually arrest him. And so they would have had to give him a reason. Why are you going to send Roman soldiers? So he would have had a sense of what, what their issue with Jesus was. So Pilate is annoyed and yet he has to, has to deal with this, like that they even brought him back to him. It was like he thought they were going to take care of it. The Jewish authority says, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, the the issue here is the Jewish authorities want Jesus dead. They want him for dead for blasphemy, claiming that he is God. Now, the Jewish people, because they're under Roman occupation, haven't been able to uh, issue the death penalty for all that time when they've been under Roman occupation because Rome began to see it as a kind of usurping their power and authority and as a way they can control the people but say no you can't issue the death penalty you can kind of do everything else under your law but you can't issue the death penalty the the penalty the death penalty for blasphemy would have been stoning but they don't ask for stoning do they they want Jesus crucified They want the Romans to do it because they don't just want Jesus dead. They want him humiliated. They want him put up on a cross so that he is a curse, that he's cursed for his life. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, the Jewish law says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile him, your land that Lord your God is giving you with inheritance. So the idea that you were hang or hung on a cross, and Acts talks about this well, is that you were considered curse, that this was not a proper way to death. And so this is actually one of the ways that the Romans would actually um, intimidate, terrorize the Jewish people, but this is how they would kill them, by putting them on a cross and not just a simple kind of stoning as well. They would make a public display and curse the person that was being killed. In verse 32, this last kind of thing is just kind of a John's post-editorial note. Is like, see all this is happening? Jesus actually is intending to be killed on a cross, not to be stoned. He wants this humiliation death. In John 12, 32, 33, Jesus says, "And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This Jesus used this imagery of not just be putting on a cross, as also being glorified, and that connection. Uh, you remember into the, the sto- story in, in the wilderness in Numbers, when when uh, the people are being bitten by snakes, and they plead for God, Moses pleads for God, and and God gives them out for their sin. They're being bitten by snakes. Like if you just look at the staff, if you raise your eyes up, then you'll be saved. Of course, that's the imagery of what Jesus is implying with the cross. If you raise your eyes up and look to Jesus, you'll be saved from your sins. In verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, did you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief peace have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can see in this, in this, in this account is that Pilate is supposed to be the integrator, but actually Jesus flips it around, and he begins to interrogate Pilate. Are, are you interested that you actually think I'm a king? Or are you just repeating the charge that others are bringing against me? And Pilate's, of course, incredulous to this response, like, what would I care if you were a king of the Jews or not? What does that matter to me? I have no interest in the Jews or their king. It's irrelevant. It's inconsequential. Why would you ask me that question? What all that matters to Pilate in this moment is not who Jesus is, but Pilate's circumstance of his political instability. Like, He doesn't really care about what the outcome of Jesus is. All he cares about is what is the outcome of this moment for me? How is the emperor going to look upon me in this moment? Are are the Jews going to be happy with me or not happy? Are they rig a bell? Are they going to cause a ruckus? Are they going to cause issues with me with the emperor? What do I care about you, Jesus? What do I care about who you claim to be? All he asks him, what have you done to tick them off? Tell me, tell me so I can deal with this. So we can resolve this matter. In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If you go back, think about this Spurgeon quote, which I just read, right? Nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. You see, our actions eventually reveal our beliefs. Our actions are a testimony to what we actually believe. And Jesus is comparing in this, really this whole endeavor of him being arrested to this trial and to this encounter with Pilate, is that all his actions Compared to Peter, all his actions compared to the religious authorities, the Jews, which bring charges, which they don't have, right, they have hypocritical actions. And to his actions against Pilate, Pilate doesn't even care about justice, Pilate just cares, what's it to me? How is it going to affect me? In John eight twenty three, Jesus, in his comparison to his actions versus the world, said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Remember what world is? Is the, the active rebellion and moral order against God. You are, that is who you are. You're an active rebellion against God. That is not who I am. Jesus is comparing himself to the Jewish leaders who, are, who show themselves and their actions to be liars to have murderous and violent intent, and they're willing to do it by any means necessary, using force to arrest, using the Romans to kill him. Jesus is comparing himself to his actions versus Pilate. What is Pilate's only concern? Pilate's only concern is for himself and for his position. The Jewish leaders, their only concern is for their actions and their righteous obedience. Which is all about them, not the God they worship. It's really the same issue Pilate and the Jewish leaders have. And Jesus is comparing himself to both. Look at my actions, how different they are. Those of the kingdom, the actions of the kingdom of God, Jesus shows that our mercy, their self-sacrifice, they're to the benefit of the others. And what we're learning in, in Sunday school is this: the application of seeking the peace and the welfare of this city. That is by the very nature, this peace shalom. Right? G- Jesus is the elder brother. He lays down his life. He shows us this is who he is and this is what he does. And we, in comparison, well, the world, are ones that are always self-interested. We seek the peace and prosperity of ourselves. any means necessary. Jesus' kingdom is different. It's in this world, but it doesn't belong to this world. 1 John 5-4 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This act of rebellion against God. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Faith. Faith. Faith in what? Faith and trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus, that He is the one that will overcome. You see, faith in God's might is what it is. It's not faith in our strength or our ability or our might, but God's might. God's power. And God's might in His power is displayed in comparison to all others in this moment by his willingness to go to the cross and die for others. That's his might. That's his power. That's the way of the kingdom, not the way of the world. In verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. He, he really says, this, that, that's literally what it says, but an uh, idiom would say is, you rightly say that I am a king. It's kind of a way, yeah, you you say it. For this purpose I was born. I mean, should that not pay us attention? Like, we should listen to this. Jesus is giving a purpose statement, a vision statement, a mission statement. To bear witness. For this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The purpose of Jesus is to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus has been clear, particularly in this book, He is the truth. And John fourteen six, right? Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." And so truth is not just it is, but it's not just an intellectual accent. Uh, you may or may not know this, but you are all, you are influenced by the Enlightenment. You and I process and think like enlightened people, and it's hard for us not to think like enlightened people. And so for us, we think truth is an intellectual ascent. That's just how we naturally process. And that would not be how they would even conceive a truth in that initial way for Jesus' time. It is that. It is an intellectual ascent. But it's more than that. Jesus says truth is a person. Truth is not just a person, it's a reason and a purpose. I want you to think about that. Truth is a reason and a purpose, which takes us right back to the beginning of the prologue of John. Remember the prologue of John right in the first thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that word for word is this uh, Greek word for, is logos. Now, logos has lots of different kind of meanings of it. One of it is speech, speech of God or, or word. But it's, John doesn't just use this word to mean speech or word. He does. He used it because in that time, Greek philosophy used this idea of logos as a concept, meaning the purpose of the universe when they talked about the logos that it was the meaning or purpose of the whole universe, which makes a lot of sense if you understand that his use of logos, that uh, Jesus in the beginning was the word, the logos, the purpose, the meaning of the universe, and the word was with God, the purpose and meaning was with God, and the purpose and meaning was God. And the next two verses, here are the next two verses, makes a lot of sense now. Now do you understand that context? He was in the beginning with God, who was he, Jesus, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a purpose statement. That's a reason. That the very existence of the universe, the very purpose of the universe, is centered in Jesus. Jesus is the Logos, He is the purpose and meaning of the universe specifically John begins with the creation and the foundation of all things. Now, if we want to take go back into trinitarian theology which I've talked about before, right, we talked about the very basis of understanding the trinity is that the father and son eternally love each other. And love by its very nature is so overwhelming and, uh, and overflowing. I'm getting caught at the back here. Uh, overflowing that love creates it overflows out of that relationship, and by very nature, it creates things. It creates the whole universe. It creates you and I, their love, out of their overflowing, mutual back-and-forth love of the Father and Son. The Father and Son, they create it out of that love, all of creation. And what's interesting here is that why out of the new heavens and a new earth that we are recreated, the new humanity is created because God so loved the world. It overflows out of him and that he has to fix the issue, the moral rebellion, the sin. You see, Jesus is the the agent of creation. He is God. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He's the reason why you breathe, you blink, you have existence right this moment. Jesus is the reason for all things. He is the purpose of all things. He is the truth. That's what he means. He is the foundational truth of all things. And so Jesus' purpose statement to Pilate, my purpose is to bear witness To the truth. His purpose is self disclosure of the Logos, the meaning and purpose of all things. This is what Jesus says to Pilate I'm here to tell you the truth of all things, the meaning and reason of all things. I'm here to reveal and disclose God, I'm here to reveal and disclose me. that I am the true king, that I am the true God of the everlasting and true kingdom. I am the purpose. I am the meaning of all things. I am the alpha. I am the omega. I am the beginning. And the end. And the very name of God, in which Moses asked him, he said, What's your name, God? What should I tell them? He says, I am and he is. That's the word he uses. I am and he is, which implies that all things else are not in comparison. That's what Jesus says. I am that God. I am that truth. I am that reason. And the last thing he says there, everyone who is of the truth, tied or connected to God listens, obeys his voice, listens to the truth. In John ten three, he's used this imagery of a, a shepherd with his people. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. They hear the voice of truth. They hear the purpose and meaning of the universe. In verse 27 in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So it's not just, he's not saying, they just understand the truth. They're like, ah, I got it. They follow. They obey you see, being a, a, being united to Jesus, it, it, being a disciple of Jesus, literally means being a student of him. It's not just sitting in the classroom and learning facts. That's not what it means to be a student of Jesus. But it's about following and living out his character and truth. And rabbis, uh, this is not something... Uh, that we do, I don't, a rabbi in a student relationship and a disciple relationship, a rabbi would say, hey, I goes up to someone, I think, you know, usually the best of the best, smartest people, and he would say, I think you can know what I know, and I think I can teach you to do what I do, because that's what they, have, what they understand of being a, a disciple of a rabbi. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't pick out the most intelligent people. Aren't you glad? <laughs> right. He picks out the people that are least educated, the exception of, of Paul, well, that's a whole different kind of story. And he says, "You can know what I know, and you can do what I do. I can make that happen. This is what's going to be." And so it, the idea is that we we do what God does. We follow in His character and His way. It's it's the truth. Jesus also being the way, which also is the life. That's all these things that are interconnected. It's all the character of Jesus. So when we read this passage, we think, who is Jesus in this passage? It's not just that he's God, but how does he actually behave? And therefore, in that, he's actually calling us to that same behavior and character. It's it's living out the fruit of the Spirit, his Spirit, his character, which, you know, we, we've talked about that, right? The fruit of the Spirit, I was like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and something else I'm missing, That's right? But, and also the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are just a, really a list of his character. This is who God is. That's who he's calling us to be. It's, we don't do those things that therefore we are then obedient and righteous, We do those things because he is calling us to follow him. The truth, the reason, and the purpose of the universe. Jesus is is demonstrating and living in the truth in front of all people, including the Romans, including the Jewish leaders, including the disciples, including us. In this hard moment. Jesus is speaking the truth in this moment. Jesus is not just living and speaking the truth. He is the truth, the reason and purpose for all things. He is self-disclosing, revealing the truth, who God is. When we follow Jesus in his words and his actions, I want you to think about this. When we follow the logos... In his words and his actions, we live out the purpose and meaning of the universe. I just want you to let that sink that in for a very moment. When you begin to live out the character of God in your community, in your family, you begin to demonstrate... I don't, it's not beyond God. This of the exact nature of who God is. The purpose and reason of the whole universe. Man, we struggle at times, don't we? We ask the question, what's my purpose? What's my reason? What's the purpose of all these things? And Jesus is making it very clear. I, don't overcomplicate this. I am the purpose. I'm the reason. Follow me. Live out my truth live out the truth. And we ask that question, what we lack, I I mean, I just think in this world, we lack purpose, we lack vision, and we lack hope at times. And because our vision and hope is something different, we try to figure out a different reason and different purpose for our own lives. We ask, what is the purpose and what is the reason of our lives? And we struggle with this and it leads to all kinds of issues. And this is it. This is clearly the purpose and reason of your life. Jesus. Who he is. I know that may sound oversimple, but man, I think it's profound. You want to know what God is calling you to do in this life? Do you think he's overly concerned about your vocation? How you get paid? I mean, I think he's like... I think he does, does at times gives very particular vocations but he's more concerned are you living in out the very character are you being transformed into the reason and purpose are you being transformed into me and think about your job whatever you're struggling with it or not struggling with it like here's your purpose in your job in your family are you living out the character and the truth and the words of Jesus that's your purpose. That's the purpose. That's the reason for all things. And Pilate's response, Pilate's response to all of this is: what is truth? You, you can, Pilate is so uninterested in this conversation. What is truth? And after he said this, he went back to the Jews and says, I find no guilt in him. This is irrelevant to me. It doesn't make sense. Like just take him. Pilate hasn't heard a word. Of what Jesus is saying. Have you? He hasn't heard the logos. He hasn't heard the truth. And so he asks, what is truth? I don't understand. What does it matter? It's right before his eyes. The person, the words, the action. And he cannot recognize it. All Pilate can see in this moment is his circumstance his situation and how it affects him man I relate to Pilate and that's often all I look at in moments just what how does it affect me how does it as Shannon would say how does it affect my comfort thanks Shannon for pointing that out for my sin uh, Right. so like, how, how does it pertain to me which is the issue the viewpoint of the Pharisees right All they can think about was themselves, their obedience. Same issue with Pilate. It's just thinking of himself. It's not how Jesus thinks. All we see oftentimes is ourselves, our need, and our wants. And we fail to see the reason and the purpose. We fail to see the logos and the truth. We fail to see Jesus. You think Jesus, when he sees the moments at the cross, he think he's all he thinks about is, man, this is going to hurt a lot. He might have had that thought, I don't know. But he's not thinking about overly concerned what's going to happen to him. He's concerned what's going to happen to you and I. He puts the prosperity, the peace of us first. That's the very nature of who God is. Let us never forget we are citizens not of the kingdoms and empires of this world. We reside in them. We should honor them. We should almost always obey them. (laughs) Almost always. But we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are resident aliens of the nations and rulers of this world. We belong to the truth. We belong. To Jesus. We belong to the one who has secured our citizenship on the cross. May we never forget our home. May we never forget our king. May we speak and live out the truth and seek the prosperity of those around us, the peace, the shalom of those around us. May we live out the reason and purpose over and over again so that people may know the reason, and the purpose of the whole universe. Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, I'm a little overwhelmed at this truth. At you. I'm a little overwhelmed with the At times, it seems the impossibility to follow you, to live in that truth, or to pull away from my selfishness, or to pull away from my circumstances and and to look up to you and to follow you. Lord, I grant you, ask you to grant us the grace, grant me the grace to see beyond, to not. uh, belittle or demean the moments of our lives, but to see beyond and see you and see the reason and purpose. We thank you, God, that you are a God that doesn't just declare us righteous, but makes us righteous through your spirit. Continue that work today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen.